Welcome to What CEOs Talk About. Do you wonder what CEOs talk about behind closed doors? How they bring their vision to reality? How do they overcome and succeed through adversity? We share that and so much more with each episode. Now, let's get started with the show. Hello, everybody. My name is Martin Hunter. I am the host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate vision into frontline operations. Today, the dynamic duo. We have a two awesome authors of the book, I Need to Fucking Talk to You, <laughs> and a great set of uh, behavioral-based card shift, and we can talk about it uh, later on, but these two are great, great tools. Ken and Russell, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, it's a great pleasure for us to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ken, how about we start with you? Can you give us a kind of two to three minutes? Who uh, are you currently? Give us your full name, position. What do you do for a living currently? Absolutely. My uh, name is Ken Cameron. I'm the CEO and shift disturber at Corporate Culture Shift. So uh, it's an organization that helps leverage great performance through an organization's culture. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Russell, your turn. And I'm president and the leadership champ at Blue Gem Learning, and I focus on helping uh, leaders improve individual and team performance in their teams. Before we go with the title of the show, uh, it's important for the listeners and the audience to understand who the speakers are. So, Russell, can you start us off? Can you... Where are you from? How did you grow up? Because it tells a lot how a person has grown up and their journey to where they are today is really good. Can you tell the audience, you know, where are you from? What's your what's your journey to kind of where we are today? Okay, um, so Russell Stratton, I was born in uh, West London um, and I spent most of my formative years in either West London or North London in the UK. Uh, as people may have recognized by my accent, I'm not from the same place of the world as you two guys. Um, I moved to Canada uh, 10 years ago, so I'd been um, in the UK up to that point. Uh, schooling, fairly average. I, I, I lived in a um, working class, lower middle class area. Um, went to a school that was okay in a pretty rough area it was probably a better school in a rough in a rough area couldn't wait to leave uh went straight to work from there so i came out with my you know, high school diploma equivalent and went straight into work and i did my qualification so my degree and master's degree um as an adult so quite late in life i was in my oh. 30s and then in my 40s when i did my master's degree i didn't, didn't do this um straight out of school um i went straight into work life from working at the bottom it's sort of bar work um cleaning, administrative assistant, bit of construction work, bit of manufacturing. So I did a lot of those um, entry-level jobs um, mm -hmm. and a lot of stuff where you were the sort of bottom rung on the ladder in the corporate hierarchy, so to speak. Um, I worked for the UK Customs Service for a number of years, um, various roles in there, all that had a training um, and leadership bent to it. So I worked in some of the um, operational teams. I worked uh, with... Um, HR there and internal cons consultancy and training. Mm -hmm. um, had a period of secondment to the Metropolitan Police in London, or as Ken likes to refer it as Scotland Yard. 
I actually worked around the corner from Scotland Yard. You didn't have a handsome cab and a deer stalker cap <laughs> and pipe or anything like that. But I worked with a, a good colleague of mine, a gentleman by the name of Fergus Lawson, um, on their leadership development team, um, mm -hmm. which was looking about improving leadership capability in the Metropolitan Police. For those people who are listening who aren't aware, the Metropolitan Police is the largest police service in London. Uh, London's a population of about 9.5 million. So there are a fair number of police officers and um, our role was trying to uh, improve the leadership capability there. I came back to customs um, ready for the merger with the Inland Revenue, which was an interesting and probably subject that you could talk about in a podcast on its own about mergers <laughs> of two organisations. Mm -hmm. Very much in the, in the learning um, and development uh, sphere there. The only thing I will say, or when the idea of merging two cultures, imagine that customs had a culture that was like a cross between the Royal Navy and the police, and the Inland Revenue has a culture like a firm of accountants. So the <laughs> exactly. idea that they're both revenue collecting, let's join them together and then wonder how that gets on. Um, so, uh, so there's a story in, its, in itself. There, oh, it, uh, we know all about M&A. That's what we do for a living. We exactly, roll up companies exactly. so trying to merge companies. So matter, no matter how much you think people are aligned, there's just ways of people doing things that just kind of... Right. Just let's look at Western culture as a whole. You know, you look at most of the Commonwealth and drink tea in North America, you know, uh, in in the U.S. coffee. Ted Lasso is a great example of that. If anybody's watched Ted Lasso, how he despises tea and how the rest of the world enjoys it. So <laughs> I appreciate that. For sure. For sure. And then I, I, I sort of started working um, my own sort of consultancy firm focusing on leadership development. Mm -hmm. um, simply because I, I got fed up for working for people that knew less than I did and uh, getting paid a lot less than they did. And um, that was one of the reasons why I said, hey, you know, I, can, I can do this better. So I did. Um, I've run that business in the UK and then latterly I moved to Canada. So probably I'm nearly 20 years of running that mm. um, you know, cons a private consultancy firm. And the type of clients I'd had on both sides of the pond were a mixture of, of sort of non-profit uh, organizations, uh, particularly those that were working around with families and dom uh, domestic violence and victims of domestic violence, mm. which was an area that sort of ended up with, within both um, countries. Um, law enforcement and uh, emergency services, um, number of ex-military personnel, and then moving into um, areas such as uh, construction and manufacturing, um, public sector, I tended to stick, steer away from because I'd worked in it for a long time and um, <laughs> didn't want to necessarily go back. And um, yeah, that was the, the, the idea of, of, of coming back and then moving to Canada as something that was a, an opportunity to do something that was different. Um, and as part of that was driven, as I say, my, my, my late father was a guy who, who, through circumstances, in some ways, didn't follow career path that he perhaps would have really enjoyed. He was in the military for some time and, and probably always should have stayed in the military. He didn't and always left and regretted it. And I didn't want to be somebody that said when I was, you know, if I got to 80 years old, um, saying, I wish I had done this and never done it. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember hearing him say that a lot and I didn't want to be saying that myself. So um, when I had things that I wanted to try and do, like start my own business or emigrate to Canada, 
Um, work with Ken. You know, these were things that I just said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, then I'll do something else. Um, I didn't want to have any regrets. So, uh, yeah, basically that's, that's brought me to where I am, if that gives you enough of a feel for that. Fabulous. Thank you very much. And I, I'm assuming that Ken is not the reason why you moved to Canada. You guys met after the fact. Is that so, Ken? That's absolutely true. That's absolutely right. So we actually All met right. at a morning breakfast networking meeting. We both started our own consultancy firms. Russell had just moved here. And Russell had been doing some various different things. And we were at this uh, morning breakfast club meeting, and one of our mutual friends said, Oh, Russell, you have to meet Ken. He does strange things with actors, and you do strange things with horses. So the two of you should, should get along famously. So I, I, I took a step back, um, but I trepidatiously shook the gentleman's hand, and uh, from there a, stro a, a strong bond of friendship, both personal and business, was born. Fabulous. So tell us your story, Ken. Well, it, it probably couldn't be more different than Russell's. I uh, grew up in Canada, the uh, child of six generations that had lived in this country, uh, descended from Scottish uh, on, on the one side and Eng English, Irish, Quakers on the other side. So I grew up with, uh, and grew up on a farm. So I grew up with mm -hmm. strong rural connections, strong family connections, deeply embedded in sense of place, um, uh, deeply aware of, of history. Um, and I had no place on the farm, even from a young age. I was a dreamy um, child, I was an imaginative child, I was, I was uh, a very playful child, and, I, I, and a, a quiet reader as well. So I um, moved away from the farm um, uh, to, go to, to go to a boarding school as a young child, and uh, as, sorry, as a teen, I meant to say, and then um, from there moved further and further away into first, um, first Toronto, then Montreal, and then um, uh, over here to Calgary as I pursued my education. And I um, landed on a career in the theater, so I became one of Canada's uh, foremost and most produced playwrights. So I've, I've written oh, wow. big hits that have been done all across Canada and that um, have been, um, you know, great, um, uh, you know, kind of plays that have really that have really made an impact on a lot of different people's lives and that have told really great and wonderful stories. And that that's been marvelous. And I also um, had a parallel career as an arts administrator. So, you know, you don't make a lot of money as a playwright, you know, like you spend <laughs> you spend a lot of time, like anywhere between four to eight years working on a single play and with no real no, uh, um, guarantee that it's going to be a success. Mm -hmm. right? So the um, it, and I was lucky enough that I had, out of the 25 plays I've written, I've had two major successes. And that's more than most people get. Um, oh, wow. But I also, um, so in, I, I paid the bills by being an arts administrator. And that parallel path led me to running Canada's National Theatre Festival in partnership with the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. So I was commuting between Calgary oh, wow. and Ottawa, managing a board of high-profile theatre um, uh, people who in, the, in themselves ran, ran theatres all across the country. And I was commissioning plays that um, went on to Broadway success and so on and so forth. And it was a really... It really was the the pinnacle of a career that somebody in the arts would want, somebody in the theater would want. And um, after doing that for um, four to five years, uh, after a high, a great deal of burnout, I walked away. And I walked away oh. from that festival. I walked away from arts administration. I did uh, maybe about four more plays, and then even that was uh, leaving me burned out. And I really felt I needed to do something else. And I okay. followed in the footsteps of two close friends of mine who had moved into business consultancy and I um, followed into their footsteps and eventually um, found my own path and uh, in the own work that I want to do in this um, 
in, in the world of business. And that, or for the past, I would say it's been about 10 years, Russell, since I started that journey, has been marvelous. It, it amazes me how you guys have such different paths, yet here we are today with a title of the show that is called... Bosses Suck. It's Time to Be a Leader. Da, 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 da. So why did we... Russell, what in there is so moving for you? Why did we choose, because we kind of, for the audience, we kind of, we, we, we whiteboarded this idea to make sure that we had some, a meat in the middle that was really what drives Ken and Russell, right? So you guys are a dynamic duo because you guys have your own podcast as well, right? What's the podcast called? It's called I Need to Effing Talk to You, the podcast. Exactly, which is the same title as the book. So let's look at that one. You guys can go see and listen to Ken and Russell talk. What what brings you together? Why do we choose that title, Russell? What's what's the what's the magic sauce between you and Ken? Okay, well, if we're thinking about why why the title, uh, two 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 things really. The first is about why the title is important. So throughout mm -hmm. my career, I, I've I've worked for and with a lot of people in a I'll say in a managerial role. They have the title mm -hmm. of, of manager or some some variation thereof. Uh, and I've, mm -hmm. I've worked with, in terms of supporting through a consultancy and, and, and coaching role, an even more greater group of, of people and managers. Um, some of them are truly leaders, and some of them were just bosses. And why I mean that, they have the title, but they don't really deliver any value behind mm -hmm. them other than they have the organizational title. Um, and before we were on air, I, I, I shared with you a, a couple of questions that I ask groups that I'm working with. Um, and one is, you know, who's the best manager you've ever had and who was the worst manager you've ever had or worst leader mm -hmm. you've ever had? And what were the characteristics of both? And people would complete that. And often people could give you lots of examples of the negative. Um, less examples of, of, of the positive. And one of the things I said, the reason that I do the work that I do is I would like people to be able to be remembered by their own teams as great leaders in their organization, not as terrible bosses, not as the people you go, oh, I remember that guy, I remember that woman, it was awful to work mm -hmm. for them. So that's what I was aiming to do, to get people to move from that, you know, bosses to, to lead to leader and be somebody that people will remember for the right reasons. Where that linked in with Ken is, is for me, it was very important in helping people on that journey that it wasn't just enough to give people knowledge. You had to help people to experience an experiential mm -hmm. um, activity that would allow them to um, change what how they behave so that they can then behave differently back in the workplace. So my conversation mm -hmm. with Ken at that breakfast meeting or following from that breakfast meeting was about the activation of, of learning. And what I was interested with Ken's background was what he'd done in the, in the theatre world and with the arts of using that to activate people's learning. So the workshop that we have that centres around having difficult workplace conversations, which is what the book's all about, um, mm -hmm. is the use of arts-based learning activation with our participants so that they can 
uh, what we say, act their way into a new way of being, and then Role when they go back yeah. to work, they're, they're able to do it, rather than, here's a great model that you can use, um, now see you later and have best chance applying it. No practice, absolutely, right? The, um, uh, we do a similar exercise, you know, you think about the, the best person that's influenced you, and you said it in there, it, he made me feel awful, he or she made me feel awful, Right? And when you turn that around and you go, well, who made you feel comfortable? Who made you feel like you are growing? And then they'll go, oh, you know, Coach Jimmy, uh, when I was nine years old, made me feel like a superhero because of this, right? And you're, okay, well, what was he doing? That behavior that I think, feel, do is what a lot of people tend to forget. And that's what we do when we roll up companies and we merge some th the companies and they're very transactional and they say, well, have you been a transformational leader? Have you been able to help your people grow? And what I think what you guys are doing is you're acting it out. You're, you're really practicing. It's hard to, I mean, rugby is a huge part of our family's life. My boy, my daughter, I've played rugby. You can't, you can't be good if you don't practice. And you can't expect leaders to, because they're adults, to say, here's your book, here's, a f here's an SOP, go do it. Like OJT, on-job training, is the best way to learn anything. Wonderful, wonderful. Ken, what about you? How, why is this title important to you? Well, it's, it's important to me because the, it, it's about, for me, a lot of the work that drives me is, is making workplaces better for everybody who works in them. And we know that so much of an organizational culture is it's driven in two parts. It's driven by the people who are live in the culture, but it's also driven by the leader who leads that culture. Mm -hmm. And it's an equal measure, both parts, in, in my view. It's just, you know, 50% the people who, who work within the, the, the pool, so to speak, and then mm -hmm. another 50% the lifeguard who leads the pool. And so there's I, my goal in the work that I try to do is to make workplaces not suck. And I have a saying on my website that ordinary sucks because so much of the uh, of workplaces that we live in are really they're getting by okay right like they're you know yeah. they're relatively ordinary they're doing okay they're they're um you know they're, they're maybe not exceptional workplaces but you know they're, they're not toxic necessarily and i you know i might do a little kind of caveat in here that i don't generally work with toxic workplaces i find that's a little bit like uh, pushing water uphill i'd much rather work uh -huh. in an organization that want that 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 you know is, is wants to achieve more and yet I mm -hmm. often find, to go back to that point around ordinary, that, you know, so many of us settle for ordinary. <gasps> and you've probably heard oh. that expression, that if you're standing still, then you're falling behind. Because none of your yes. competitors are standing still. They're moving forward. They're innovating. They're striving. They're working to become as exceptional as possible. So if you're ordinary, then you're falling behind. And falling behind sucks. So let's not settle for an ordinary workplace. Let's not settle for an ordinary culture. Let's not settle for ordinary leadership. Let's try to create exceptional workplaces. Let's create exceptional cultures that are driven by exceptional leaders. I want to bring it back to the arts. You go to a play or a movie and you go, how was the movie? And you go, meh. Will you remember that movie? No. If you go to a movie, like my kids and I have watched Kung Fu Panda like a thousand times, right? A thousand times. And we all laugh because it is, like you said, it's not ordinary. It's a bit different. And I agree, no matter what size of the organization you are, 
And again, uh, people tend to say if you're not moving forward, people tend to view growth as excessive or at a velocity, one step in front of the other. Like people tend to say, oh, I change, it, it brings so much risk. Why? It just one step at a time, right? We, um, I, I want to bring it back to these shift cards because these, uh, this is really important to me. I speak my values every single day. We get shit done. We demonstrate care. We're well-grounded. We learn and we innovate and we act on data. Those are our core values. And every single day I ask my leaders, have you demonstrated those? Have you pushed those forward? Have you moved the organization forward? And are you demonstrating those? Because I think what you're saying is exactly in this shift. Being ordinary means that you're just settling. I love that word. I love that word. It's not bad and it's not good. And you're just kind of settling. What kind of marriage is that? You know, I've been married for 19 years now. And if we just settled all the time, just what are you doing? You're just showing up. You're not enjoying the journey. That's such a powerful word. I agree. It's it, and you know, and it's a motivating word too, um, as you've described. Like, who mm -hmm. wants to settle? Who wants to be ordinary? Who 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 enjoys the status quo? You know, so much of us, are, so many of us, are frightened by change, but enticed by change as well. Mm hmm. I think for me, the I, I, I related back to being a boss and being a leader and being in a stagnant or settling. I think that's your job as a leader. What do you got? So. What is the top thing that you see? And let's just keep it settling. Let's not change the world completely. When, when an organization is flat and blah, what are some of the leadership issues that you see right away? They're not bad leaders and they're not good leaders. What's the, what's the behavior that you most likely see that catches your eye and go, oh, that's a quick fix. That's easy. So it was one of the things that, I, I've I've seen with with people where it's sort of just like meh, um, mm. and it comes back to our our book. There is people not addressing issues that come up when they're they're this small. So uh, so those that are listening oh. uh, when it's small, rather than what they wait till the problem gets to be a big problem, and and this is where I sort mm. of combined with my operational as an operational manager with my consultancy role and then my HR role is that often what I found is that, you know, the sort of problems that came over performance, attendance, behavior, which were causing a problem within the team and then potentially within the organization as a whole, if that gets replicated across other teams, often started as a, as something fairly small. They didn't start as a big problem. It started mm. as a small problem. And whether it's through a lack of lack of courage, a lack of uh, a lack of understanding, a lack of confidence, a lack of you know field of tools, capability to be able to deal with it, the issue gets left, and then suddenly it grows and it grows and it grows, and that's when it's you know, mentioned toxic workplaces. That continues over a period of time, and you see the same types of problems reoccurring again and again. And when you trace back to its origin, it was often you know. You know, not maybe just one point, but maybe a series of small mm. points that could have been addressed at the time. The, the leader at the time could have addressed that. They could have resolved it. The situation could move forward. Instead, it's left to fester, and it does nobody any good. It doesn't help 
them as the leader. It doesn't help them do their job better. It doesn't help the team. It doesn't help the organisation. It doesn't help the individual. You know, one of the things you look at is people are just left to, to, to flounder. And one of the things we, we, we say mm -hmm. on our, our workshops with people when they say, well, yeah, but if you challenge people where people don't like that, you say, well, yeah, th th there is an element. Sometimes people don't like perceived criticism. But I said, what if you had a point where there was part of your job that you did that you weren't particularly good at? And everybody that you worked with knew you weren't good at it. None of them wanted to say anything to you because they didn't want to you know, annoy you or upset you. So they all kept quiet. But day in, day out, week in, week out, they watched you struggle doing something. And they would just go out behind you with a dustpan and brush and just clear up after you. But nobody ever told you. you know, what would that be like? Even if the conversation was uncomfortable for you at the time, wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't you like to be able to have the opportunity to address it? Maybe get some support to help you? Or just leave people? And I think that's for me, has always been one thing. Is issues come up and they're just not, not dealt with. And it just gets moved around until eventually it becomes a big problem. And then the organisation's running around saying, oh, we need to solve this. We need to bring these people in. And great, we need this organisational change. And, you know, really, so yeah, a lot of this could have been dealt with at the source early on. And the thing that strikes me about that story is, like, you're not, we think that we're being nice to the person, or we think we're doing the person a favor by not bringing this <laughs> up, by not making them uncomfortable. But what kind of favor are you doing to the person by letting them fail at their job? And, you know, a year, two years, three years go by. And finally, you know, the person's like, you know what? We're going to let you go. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, uh, fire you because you can't do this part of the job really well. And, well, why didn't you tell me? You know, you've yeah. known for years that I, 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 I'm bad at this job. You didn't, offer, you didn't tell me. You didn't offer me any training. So what kind of leader are you if you're not willing to put on the big pants and have the conversation that you need to have with your team to make them better. I, I want to, I absolutely love this. Most of the time it is not as intense as that. People tend to, because the word settling for me is magical because people are afraid to having performance management conversations on a regular basis. They work, for, they wait for the quarterly, they wait for the annual, even in small businesses. And say, oh, I'll talk to them, I'll talk to them. no, as a leader, your job is to be curious. Hey, Ken, why did you fuck up yesterday? As simple as that. Oh, well, I wasn't paying attention. Okay, why were you not paying attention? Well, you know, I, I don't know. My, my dog's really sick and my head wasn't in the game. Oh, oh I'm sad to hear that. Did you tell your supervisor? No, my dog, man, I don't want to be seen as, okay, well, Ken, this is important. Your safety is important to me. You know, so on, so on, so on, so on. So I think too many leaders just settle and are not curious. Your job is to ask questions. Your job is to fix things. Your job is to be a problem solver. And too many times they just kind of let it settle. And all of a sudden they go, oh. And then as an employee, can you knocked it, you know, right on the head. I was like, well, nobody told me. All right, you know, well, okay. So as a leader, we always say, Four critical activities, direction, facilitation, elevation, celebration. You should be doing that every single day. You're providing direction if somebody doesn't know what they're doing. You're facilitating work. I'm struggling. Okay, we'll facilitate the work. You know, how do you in elevate the individual? And then lastly, how do you celebrate? Now, if you're the leader, 
there's nobody giving you that. So you have to make sure that you're doing it for yourself. How are you facilitating your work? How are you creating direction for the organization? How are you elevating and facilitating and celebrating yourself? I think that too many people tend to, leaders or bosses tend to point the finger out when they should focus on them first, on making them the best person that they can be. And then all of a sudden, kindness, compassion, empathy, because they know how difficult sometimes life can be. Of the, I, I was addicted to Coca-Cola. Most of my rugby career had, you know, I had some some pretty, I'm, I'm Scottish from heritage. My father would say all the time, two cans of Coke and a bag of chips, but chips like not crisp, uh, uh, French fries, right? And so, but then playing rugby six days a week, I'm now from the age that I'm, you know, I was like nine years old when I first started playing rugby. Can you imagine two cans of Coke six times a week? Just like the damage that it's done where I, when I see a can of Coke, I have to do everything that I can to not drink it. Right. It's it's ingrained in me. But until I find a way to break that by being curious and by testing different things as a leader, you have to own that to be able to let other people do the same. Right. And it's interesting, the point you mentioned there about that sort of you know, empathy and understanding. And sometimes I feel that people misunderstand that and that their intention is well, mm. to be empathetic and understanding. I, I don't want to hold people to account because that would be unkind. True. Like, you, this is back to the point. You're not doing anybody any favors by not having that conversation. I mean, one of the questions that I you would ask people that I'm, I'm leading and would encourage leaders to ask some people is, how can you be even better? And why I like the even better mm -hmm. phrase is that that's applicable whether you are, you know, an absolute rock star at what you do or whether you're somebody who's new and starting out and just learning your way. Everybody can be even better, and it might just be that incremental step. It doesn't have to be you know, a massive, complete change of what you do. It could be just be one small thing that they do differently. And I think if you get into the habit of doing that with people and asking them, then they can find you know, ways to be, as a leader, to facilitate people being even better than they were yesterday. And they only have to do one small thing a day. And you imagine one small thing a day for 365 days suddenly totals up to some sort of you know, big you know, step forward that you, you wouldn't otherwise have had. Mm -hmm. the, um, uh, I learned this in big corporate world. We had uh, uh, giving feedback. A lot of leaders don't understand the methodology that can be utilized to provide feedback. So we call it the feedback engine and think of two things. You never give positive or negative feedback because if I say, Ken, I'd like to give you some positive feedback, you're going to be all excited. And I go, Russell, I'd like to give you some negative feedback. You're going to say, well, who the hell are you to give me that? So we've changed the words from, hey, Ken, can I offer you some, uh, some success feedback? You were successful at achieving what I had asked you to do. Russell, can I offer some guidance? Right? It's the same thing. I'm offering you, I'm offering some feedback to adjust the behaviors, right? Where you go, context, action, result. Uh, you know, yesterday, Ken, during this meeting, you paused and you let other people speak. That the result is that we truly demonstrate care within the organization, which is our second value, right? And then you use the same methodology where it's car R context action result in a impact to the business so russell at the meeting yesterday you interrupted everybody 
Therefore, what do you think it created? Oh, well, you know, we didn't live our second value of demonstrating care as being a boss and not a leader. Okay, Russell, what can you do different? And I think too many leaders forget that feedback is the most powerful thing, and you've heard it from Russell and Ken saying it right now. If you provide success or guidance feedback once a day per individual will take you about 10 minutes, the impact that you will have on your business is ginormous. It's, it's extreme. Just take the time to do it. Yeah, and this kind of incremental feedback. I heard a call the other day on uh, management by walking around, which you know I, I've heard before <laughs> as a as a negative uh, phrase. But I've, yeah. also, I've also now I'm hearing it as a as a good phrase. That sense of uh, walking around, talking to people um, when, when they're in the work that they that they're doing. I think Russell, you've used the phrase um, catching people in the act of doing something right. Oh, yeah. Did I, I get the that. phrase right? Yeah, catching people doing something right. It's one of Ken Blanchard's phrases from one of his books. And said, oh, you, know, the, you know, the idea that, as Ken says, by managing by walking about, we say it's like you, know, you, can, you can't lead people from behind your desk. You have to lead. You know, there are certain activities you can do from behind your desk, obviously, but you have to be out there you know, on the shop floor, on the, on, the, on the job site, wherever it is, that you have to be where your people are so that you can be knowing what's going on for them to say to do two things, catch people doing things right. And when they're doing it right, saying to them, that was great. That was that sort of, you know, the praising, well done, more of that. How did you, what made you do that in that way? Yeah, that was a great idea. Do more of it. Because if people don't know they're doing it right, then they're just going to hope they are. Um, and then if occasions where things haven't gone right, that you're able to take that early proactive management action to get in there and have the conversation to say, okay, how can we be even better here? How can we um, move it forward and give people some um, support to be able to do that? But they still, they still own it. But if you don't get out there amongst people, then you don't know. And you can't, as you said there, just have the quarterly appraisal where you sit somebody down and give them a variation of the shit sandwich. You know? here's, oh. here's, uh, for those that don't know, I... Dio, here's something good, here's something bad, here's something good just to make you feel good before you walk out. You know, everybody knows it's coming yeah. and they're just sitting there thinking, <laughs> you know, what's this all about? Okay, so everybody knows the shit sandwich. I'm like, okay, something good, something bad, and you go, okay, all right, so tell me, or or uh, whatever. I agree, I agree. I think it's it's we're well past that trying to kind of ring around the rosy uh, around the conversation don't turn around the conversation just be frank be kind in how you approach the conversation if you're the if you're the leader you've either earned it or being paid to do it either or and your job is to make people better and so if having a conversation with ken and russell your employees your team members is your job is to make them better and providing feedback is not something that should be you know, when people come up to me and go, Martin, can I, can I talk to you? I say, yeah, can I give you some feedback? Absolutely. You're okay with that? Well, yeah, tell me, like, tell me what did I do wrong? Y you know, in that sales call, you, you were, you know, you went kind of down a path and we, you, you didn't really let them talk. Oh, shit. I'm so passionate about what I do that I forgot to ask questions. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I'll... You know, I'll, I'll take that as a gift. And so many people tend to forget that feedback is a gift. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it, one of the things you used, uh, Martin, in your example story a, a few moments ago, you, you were you were giving uh, giving us examples of leadership by walking around. But each of the things that you were providing feedback on in your fictional example were culture points. Correct. You know, they were, for the examples you were using were not about like, oh, you turned the screw incorrectly or you didn't fill out the paperwork properly or you did the form incorrectly. Y- you were elevating the 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 mundane to mm-hmm. the to the culture level you know it was along the line you know and you, you it might have been that there was an error on the screw or on the on the piece mm-hmm. on the piece of form but true leadership is saying you know at this organization we really pride ourselves on quality it's one of our core values and when i look at this report that you wrote i see that there are many fields left blank in the form and that's not an expression of the way that we approach our work it's not one of our values at the company so the the this notion of le- leadership by walking around is really leadership through culture it's really about creating the kind of workplace in which people can achieve their best and can excel their best by leveraging the way in which we do things around here, by leveraging mm-hmm. the culture, by leveraging the way in which we behave with one another. It's, uh, I, I, so for the audience, I will give you an example of how critical what Ken and Russell are doing right now when it comes time to practicing your leadership skills, okay? So I was working with BNSF Railways and one of the top general managers, because I was the head project manager and, and owner of, the, of, the, of what we were doing, um, I got the, the big dogs. And this one guy uh, I still remember down in Texas, big draw and uh, mountain of a man. His father was a railroader. His grandfather was a railroader. He was just, it, it ran through his blood. So he comes up to me and he says, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't know what you're going to teach me. I said, okay, as a leader, what is your job? Well, I need to give them direction. Okay, great. And again, it, it, the answer did not matter. It's whatever he gave me that I was going to evaluate. I said, okay, what's the two messages that you want to leave with him? I want to leave with him with uh, not high railing, which is hanging on to the rails as they're building the train. So hanging on and coming off the train when it's moving. So it's very unsafe. And the second one was performance management. We have performance management coming along. So I said, okay, you go out there. Let's, let's brief one of the crews. Crew comes in. He talks for about 15, 20 minutes, and he drops his two messages at the middle. And so I said, okay, thank you very much, Mr. X. Um, can, you, can you leave the room for a sec? So I handed out two sticky notes to the 10 people that were there. I said, can you put two top things that uh, Mr. X wanted you to really remember? And he said, uh, so I gathered up. And I said, okay, so Mr. X, how, out of 20, how did you score? He says, well, not to boast, and because I don't want to give myself 100, I'll say 90%. I said, how are you with 40% success rate? He's like, what the hell? So yeah, people talked about barbecues. People talked about not parking in the handicap spot. People talked about this, talked about that. He was deflated. And I said, so I'm not, I'm not telling you, I'm not giving you a secret sauce. I'm just offering you practice to change the pitch, change what you're doing, so that you're more impactful as a leader and you're not just being a boss. 
And we went out there and we changed the, the pitch where he would finish with those two things. And he was a great leader, so he applied that immediately. So he knocked it out of the park 100% of the time, the six other times. So if you're listening, and, and what Ken and Russell are saying is that practice, practice, practice. So when the day comes when you have something really important to say, you know how to deliver it and how you're not a boss and a leader. Sorry, I just, the opportunity was there for me to drop that, and I think what you guys are doing is is critical because too many people put this emphasis, I'm the boss, I'm the leader, I'm the owner, I should know better. Yeah, and you know, what you're, you're, the, the thing that you're working on there is something that I, I've learned as the rule of primacy and recency. Oh, so so we, we learn, we remember the first thing we were told, and we remember the last thing we were told, and we kind of zone out on all this shit that's in the middle. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of the things that's wrong with the shit sandwich, because you tell somebody something nice, and then you tell them the important stuff that you want them to remember, and then you tell them something nice at the end. And according to the rule of primacy and recency, all they remember is barbecues and um, play day is coming up, or, or like team building day is coming up, right? They don't remember, don't high rail, and the performance thing is coming up. They don't remember that stuff because you dropped it in the wrong place. You know, I learned this as a, uh, as a playwright, theater director, and whatnot. Like, I, I remember combing through my plays once upon a time and realizing, oh, I put the important shit in the middle of the sentence, which is really stupid. you got to put the punchline at the end of the sentence. Otherwise, everybody laughs, and they don't hear the, uh, the, the, they don't hear the rest of the information. So you got to make sure, you, you, it, it, and, you, it, and I remember going through one of my plays once and like rewriting, re, literally rewriting every sentence so that the joke was at the end or the important piece of information was at the end. And oh my God, like it actually made way more sense. It communicated its message more clearly. And so I tried to bring a lot of these principles that I've learned from the arts world into the world of business. That's just a simple one around communication. But we also do that around the uh, the role playing in this program yeah. that we that we call I Need to Effing Talk to You. You know, you've likened it to steroids. Oh, sorry, you've likened it to steroids. You've likened it to role playing, <laughs> but we call it role playing on steroids. Because one of the issues around role playing is like, let's say you and I, Martin, let's yeah. say you and I were coworkers. We work together. Maybe we're both leaders in the team. We're taking this training course. We're told by uh, the facilitator that we're going to need to do a little bit of role playing. So we're going to, you know, break out around our little table, mm -hmm. you and me, nobody else is watching. And we're, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an act. We're not actors. So we're going to kind of do it the best we can. But, you know, we both know what we're trying to get out of it. So I'm going to, I want you to succeed. So I'm going to kind of lead you there. I'm going to make it easy mm -hmm. on you because, you know, it's going to be my turn next. And I want you to make it easy on me. So neither of us are learning basically, yes. right? We bring in an actor. We write a scenario that's um, we've researched with the company, so it's as close to real life as it can possibly get. We get the actor up there, and the, we don't give the actor a script. We give them a scenario, so they're improvising mm -hmm. their way through this. They're responding to what's being said in front of them, and the actor is trained not to make it easy. So if yeah. a participant comes up, they run into a roadblock. We give, the, uh, we give them a chance to call timeout. They check in with the audience. They get a good idea. Yeah. They can either proceed or they can swap tag out. Another person comes in and kind of picks up the sentence from where we left off. You know, what they do might work. And then the actor, because they know the scenario intimately, the actor gives them another obstacle. Well, yes, yeah, so I was late every day for work. And you're right, it's I was late on. every day for work and it won't happen again. But the reason I'm late every day is because of that other guy I work with, because it's his fault. So now you've got something else you need to kind of deal with. Right. So you got to kind of uncover that. And then once you've solved that problem, there's something else. And so we're all you're, it, just like in real life, you're realizing that the problem is never the problem. Mm -hmm. No, that, I, I, I can't I, I, I can't tell how important it is, because then 
what happens is that a leader's job is to improve the leader. So if in, in the organization, you have an executive, you have a leader of leaders, and you have your frontline supervisors. And your job as a leader of leaders is to make other leaders better. So if you're not ready and willing to elevate your game by going at bat and, and doing what Ken and Russell are doing, saying, okay, all right, let's go. I'm ready. Give me everything you got. And you step up and you fail, you fail, you don't, you don't. But at least you step up and you swing, right? That's the, the key thing is that you, you do it. You do it. You don't just read about it. You well, actually I think that's, do the, it. that's the sort of you know, essential part of it because, as, as we were saying, if, if people you know, actually put it into practice – then they have a much better chance of remembering it because they've experienced it. What worked, what didn't mm-hmm. work. Watch somebody else go. Oh, well, I just yeah, I, I had trouble with that, but you put it you know wonderfully. Now though, what was that phrase you used? Let me let me use that. And um, you know, I, I've done a lot of of, of training. I've, I've, I've been on a lot of training, as no doubt you have, and, and many of our listeners have, where we get scenario based, mm-hmm. which is the first part of what we're doing. Is give them the scenario, yeah. and then we say, well, what would you do in that situation? And it could be a you know, leadership situation, it can be customer service, it can be negotiating with a, with a client or supplier, whatever the whatever. context is. And most people can tell you what what should happen. You know, I, 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 could, I could do this. <laughs> if you ask me, I would do these things. So what we take to the next level and say, okay, that sounds great. Now you're going to do it. Because what looks easy, and often have, we've had people say, to us, well, this isn't rocket science. You say, well, it's not. No, it isn't rocket science conceptually but being able to do it well is more difficult and that's a skill that we need to learn and and that part about well okay if it goes wrong it goes wrong i say to people all the time on our workshops the the worst thing that happens to you today is your ego might get bruised for a moment (laughs) there's there's no zombie apocalypse there's no fire breathing dragons the floor's not going to open and you disappear you're not going to get fired. You haven't got somebody who's going to go to the trade union and put a complaint about you. Here's your chance to practice these type of challenging conversations, have a chance to have a rerun, get ideas from others, get feedback from the actor in character about why they behaved, why did they react in that way when you said that. That's invaluable for you to play test it. And so when you go out for real and the following day, you actually have to have that conversation with a real member of staff you go out there and, as you said, you can knock it out of the park because you've got the process, you understand it, you've practiced it, you've looked at all the different options of what could go, and you've play-tested that in front with somebody who's given you those different options. And why wouldn't you want that opportunity to do it rather than saying, well, I'm just going to take the one page that you gave me and I'm, I'm going to go there and hope for the best? Your training is a force multiplier when you think about it, though. Because you're not just gaining from the practice. So if I'm, if I'm an owner and I say, okay, I'm going to do this with Ken and Russell and I'm going to invest in. So what's, what's your class size usually? How many of you guys get in a class with a corporation? 10, 15, somewhere on there? Yeah, that's the ideal class size is, is 10, 15. We've also done versions of this in front of over 100 people. And um, in which you have, you have some people come up one at a time. And those, those are very successful. They're very entertaining. They're, they're really great. And, on an, and people do learn by watching others succeed. But the best results are in the small class sizes. Uh, I, the oxytocin that is built in within the team. Because what the team will do is remember that training. 
Man, we laughed so hard. It was so funny. You know, Ken went at it. Then, man, he sucked so bad at it. Ken wasn't good. You know, Russell was not as tough as we think Russell was. You know, uh, and Martin, you know, blubbering idiot. You got, you got, and so you build this this relationship that is outside of the normal day to day. The normal what what's the word that we called it before? Now I just forgot the word. Uh, Stagnant, not stagnant. Oh, damn it. Settling. So now you've got fun. You've got activity. You've got emotion. You've got some type of energy that comes from just practicing together and being together in a form of learning and development where people are vulnerable and courageous at the same time in that Oh, I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. If, um, like, just, just give one point Russell, there that was that absolutely. illustrates what you were saying, but just flipping it, not necessarily from you know where we looked at how you know how people sucked when they were doing it, but the other side, how we were surprised yeah. at what people showed us, our coworkers that we weren't familiar with. So very briefly, oh, yeah. Ken and I did a workshop um, pre-COVID, oil and gas services company. It was to do with respect at work, and it was to do with you know how we interact with each other in a, a respectful manner in the work. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and keep in mind, these are hard hats and work boots. Yeah. So these are people who, who work out in the field all the time. Oh, yeah, so yeah, they, yeah. they've come into the room. There's a large, it was a larger group. They all sat at the back. Right. Roughnecks, yeah? right? And they're like, okay, what's this? Now, to bear in mind, what they'd had in the past was HR came and gave them a PowerPoint presentation, sign that yeah. you've read the policy, and that's it. So we start our typical style of workshop. We go through some of the, you know, the, the you know, ideas of what you could do, um, some of the scenarios, and then we have the act when people get to come up and practice challenging some of the unacceptable behaviour. So they're doing this, and people are starting to edge forward on their seats. People are starting to come down to the front because now they want to get involved and they're watching. And as they're going, they're seeing what yeah. they're doing and they're seeing what their colleagues are doing. And there's one guy. Older guy, gentleman, one of the probably he was related to the guy you talked about on the rate the, the railroad. You know, he'd been there, man and boy. His <laughs> father had been there, man and boy, and he had been pretty quiet up to this point. And then there was some point where the, where the, his colleagues were struggling with one of the scenarios. And then he sort of, if you remember, Ken, he sort of stopped and he sort of went, "Oh shit!" And he just goes, "All right, I'm up." He just comes up. Gets there and they're laughing like, oh, you know, it's, you know, Jim's come up here. What's he going to have to say? You know, no one, what's he going to do? The guy literally nails him. He's he's like, like he switched. He was like, he flips a switch. He went from being that sort of more sort of graphics, his whole demeanor changed. The questions he asked, the way he handled it, the way he talked to the the actor being the being the individual here, mm-hmm. and resolved it. And like in a few minutes, he'd suddenly moved that person from point A to point B. And then we were, you know, the act that was great. That's exactly what we've been talking about. And the thing for people that they were all sort of sitting there with their jaws open, like, oh my word. Was because was like, they said, ah. well, we never knew. I've worked with him for years. I never knew that he was a Swedish, very quiet guy. I didn't realize he did this. And he said, yeah, look, but before I worked here, I've done this. And he went and told them a bit about what he'd done in the past. He said, you know, I've, I've had this situation. So, you know, that's how I deal with it. Exactly how, you know, Ken and Russell have been talking about it. They're exactly mm-hmm. right. This is what I do. But it, it demonstrated to the other people that there was this wealth of experience and skill within their team that they didn't know about. So it wasn't just about we had a bit of a laugh and a joke with people. They had that, but they also found, holy crap, we've got some really talented people here who going forward, if I pop that situation as perhaps a newer leader, he's the guy I'm going to go and ask because 
He's, I'm going to ring that guy like, up. Any, right? Yeah, for sure. Anybody <laughs> wants to buy, so long as you buy me a coffee, you know, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do that and, and help you out. And that was that was the great <laughs> learning for the team over and above what we we were teaching them. But they noticed that they had some great results within within that group they didn't know anything about. Yeah, that's the, that's that force multiplier that I was talking about. Just don't think about the event as a transactional event where you're going to teach people skills you're also going to build solid relationships, right? Anybody who's played team sports, um, practice is almost as important. Well, I shouldn't say almost. Practice is more important than the game. Game is only what you've executed at practice, right? The bond building, the beers after, you know, the laughs, the giggles, the, the amazement at performance that were not expected. That all comes at practice, Um and game time is just when you when you show it uh, in front of a public. So, um, Ken, what is the one book, one reference, the one thing that is by your side and has been by your side for the longest that you refer back to when it comes time to leadership or owning your own business? What's the one book reference that you always go back to? Hmm, the thing that I've been going back to a lot lately since I discovered it is um, both the book and the podcast by Adam Grant. So Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist out of the Wharton School of Business, and I first came across him through his marvelous uh, podcast, which is produced by TED. Um, you know, the same people that do the TED Talks, they, they, mm-hmm. they do, do a number of podcasts. And I really like his podcast, and I really like the, what I learned from there, because he really, uh, he, he, he interviews some of his clients, and he interviews mm-hmm. them about what makes their organizations exceptional. And they're often mm-hmm. really simple things. And he also, he goes outside of his clients as well. And, um, and I also like his book called Originals. And there's a lot of overlap between both the book and the, and the, um, and the podcast. And I'll give you an example that ties to something you said earlier, Martin. Um, you talked about getting feedback from your employees as the, as the leader, as the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And virtually the scenario you described about being on a sales call and being too enthusiastic, he is, is, is described in one of the podcasts. He interviews Ray Danilo who runs um, a company called Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the most successful mm-hmm. investment firms. Um, but it wasn't originally. It, um, Danilo actually had a failed business beforehand, and he realized mm-hmm. the reason the business had failed was because nobody was telling him the mistakes he was making because they didn't <laughs> want to piss off the leader. So when he started this new company called Bridgewater Associates, one of their core values is radical candor. Radical candor. Mm. Speaking truth to power all the time, every time, no matter how much it hurts. And Danilo has a great story um, in the podcast. They interview both somebody who's new to the organization and how hard it is to kind of um, uh, be on both the receiving and the giving end of that kind of feedback. Mm -hmm. And then they also interview Danilo, who talks a a story very similar to yours, where somebody came up to him and uh, it was actually a low-level employee that sent him an email that said, Ray, you sucked in that meeting today and that can't happen again. Right. And this is a new employee. This is low level employee. Right. So Ray like calls him up. He's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I sucked. And he got really angry. And the employee was like, no, this is what you did. And you blah, blah, blah. You talked about yourself. You talked about the company. You didn't ask questions. And Ray went, what do you mean? And he went and talked to somebody else and who was in the meeting. And the other person was like, yeah, yeah, you did. And Ray went back to that employee and said, thank you very much for that feedback, because that's what makes the company better. And so what I love about that particular story is that it tells us values in action. Oh. Huh. It tells us that the leader has to live those values. And by living the values, the leader has to be humble enough 
to be able to receive um, feedback mm-hmm. when the leader transgresses those values. Value is in action. Oh, I love that one. I'm writing it down, actually. Oh, great. I, it's... And really, and that's just one example of the wealth of stories that are in both the book, Originals, and in the podcast, uh, which is called Work Life with Adam Grant. So I would oh, I recommend fabulous. those to your viewers as well. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Well, if I had to pick, pick one, it would be uh, Colin Powell's uh, 18 Tenets of Leadership. And so, you know, as, as most people will know, oh, Colin Powell, sorry. former... Um, you know, general in the U.S. military and then as uh, Secretary of State under George W. Bush. Um, mm-hmm. But he's a, he, And he had done a series of uh, talks on that and variations on it over time, but you can easily search it up on, on Google just in the 18 tenets of leadership. Um, and although mm-hmm. he's talking about it from his time in the military, it is so transferable to his to any any work you're doing as a leader, and, and there's a there's a there's a couple perhaps that come to mind for me. One was about delegating responsibility as close to the front line as possible. So in a business sense, you know I mean if you you know de- delegate responsibility for decision making as close to the people doing the job as you can rather than keeping the, respon- the, the, the decision-making responsibility at head office. So, you know, if you go into a um, coffee shop mm-hmm. and you get your order and your order's wrong and you ask for a refund, you would expect that the barista is able to resolve that situation for you, whether they give you the refund, they give you a revised order, they give you, a, you know, free coffees next time. They can make those decisions. They don't have to phone Toronto mm-hmm. and say... Um, what do I do about this? And we'll get back to the customer in three weeks' time. So you're delegating responsibility to the people actually doing the job. Why? Because they see most of the situations happening on a day-to-day basis and they're able to make those decisions because they're in the here and now. Another one that he, that he, that he talks about mm-hmm. um, is linked to that is, is building uh, trust and building trust with your team. Um, and he gives a wonderful story of his time at the infantry school at uh, Fort Benning in Georgia, um, where what he, the, 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 the drill sergeant had said to them, you know, do you want to build a relationship with your, um, your, your soldiers that they will follow you even if it's just out of curiosity? They trust you in that way, that you yes. have their interests at heart. You're not going to put them in harm's way unnecessarily. And therefore, when you say we're going here, they're going to follow you, even if they don't understand the full picture or everything that's going on, because they believe that you, um, they can trust you and you believe their interests um, at, at heart. And then linked to that, the final point that, one of, that, that sticks with me is he said that when um, soldiers, or we could say employees, stop coming to you as their leader with their problems, then you've got a problem. Because if people won't come to you, and that's not you taking responsibility for their problems or taking it on, but if people don't feel they can come and talk to you about what's going on for them, whether it's purely work-related or partly, you know, perhaps it's in their, in their, their private life as well, they can't come and speak to you, they're going to go and speak to somebody. And if it's not you, you've got a problem as a leader because they obviously don't trust you that you can support them, help them, give them guidance, or even if it's, you know, referring them to, to some specialist help. You're not, 
there's, you're adding no value, so there's no point in them coming to speak to you. So, you know, anyone's interested, Colin Powell's 18 Tenets of Leadership, great favourite of mine. Uh, you can download it as a PDF off of, uh, off of Google. Um, great stuff. Oh, and I like the book. Uh... I like the book, but I, I, I find 18 is too many. You know what? Give me three. Yeah. Like there, there may be <laughs> six subsets under each of those three, totaling 18. But give me three. And you know, one of the things I like about the the models and the work that Russell and I do around in the in I need to effing talk to you and all the other programs we run, is is we keep them simple and we keep the mm-hmm. we, we keep them. Uh, they're anacronyms. They're easy to remember and and they're 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 simple and short steps because we expect people to be able to remember them under stress, right? Like Correct. so. I got this conversation and these, these difficult workplace conversations we've been describing are, are stressful. You know, your adrenaline gets pumping, your heart's pounding, your brain's working a million miles an hour. And if I have to remember 18 principles of leadership and 18 steps that I need to follow in order to properly structure this conversation, it's like, I'm, you know, I, like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. Right. But if you give me like the three things I need to do, trust, respect, strategy. Perfect. I can do those. <laughs> it's, so we in Canadian Armed Forces, I still remember all 11 of our, you know, you know yourself, ensure that you technically sound, be the example. And all of all of that, I've summarized those three to be a good tactical operator or operational leader is really direction, support and open lines of communication. Those are the three things that I stick to. I like yours. Trust. How do you build trust? It's It's just so powerful in itself. It's like love. It's like care. There's so many things that can fit in there, but you can say, you know, do I trust them and, and do they trust me? And it's a very easy question to answer. It's a yes or no. But I mean, it, it is complex in how you do it, but uh, absolutely. I mean, gentlemen, thank you so very much for being on the show. It was absolutely delightful. I think we could have kept on going. There might be a part two to this. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Fabulous. Um, People can reach uh, out to you on LinkedIn, I'm assuming, as well? Yep, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also find us at our webpage, I need to effing talk to you.com. And you guys got a podcast as well that is on iTunes and all the platforms as well, right? It's on all the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Fabulous. With that being said, my name is Martin Hunter. I'm the host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate vision into frontline operations. Today, we really gave a lot of good leadership tools for people to bite into and sink into and and use. Please like, subscribe, and click that notification bell so that you know when the next episode is out. And with that being said, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to What CEOs Talk About. Make sure to click subscribe to get notified about future episodes or check us out at www.whatceostalkabout.com.